0: Hi guys. So today we have Pat Stewart joining us who is a former Australian Special Forces member who has transitioned into the dog world. Hey. Hi. How's it going?
1: Pretty good. How you doing?
0: I'm good. What time is it over there?
1: It is quarter past 10 in the morning.
0: Well good morning.
1: <laughs> Thank you.
0: So um, to begin can you just introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your experience prior to dog training yeah sure
1: yeah so uh my name's pat stewart hi um so i uh joined the army pretty much straight out of high school uh spent 12 years in the australian army here uh in a a unit called two commando regiments a special forces unit here and uh did myself a mischief in 2011 and broke my back and so was on kind of borrowed time for the last couple of years i was in the army and uh, made the decision in 2015 to transfer out um, and became a full-time dog trainer from there. Um, so <laughs> what's it been about? I've been on the tools like professionally doing it just as my only job for you know, probably five years. But obviously prior to that, I was you know into it as a hobby and um, was a big part of my life and was sort of a little side hustle gig while I was in the army. But it's, um, yeah, it's my main thing now.
0: Mm-hmm. Awesome. So I know that you are a Nipopo instructor mm-hmm. and before we hop into that because I know we're gonna lose people because the first time that I heard of nepopo it went over my head so can sure. you explain what nepopo is
1: yeah sure so uh, I've been a student of Barton Michael Bellen um, for about five years it was just after I got out of the army that I started uh, I linked up with those guys so nepopo is their system and you know the truth is it's not um, it's, it's no dark magic like people sometimes make it out to be it's just balanced training um, but really using the full spectrum of balanced training um, and a lot of people are training in Nipopo, like using a lot of techniques and uh, without actually realizing that and they're not nepopo people but they're using their techniques and and the reality is the truth is as balanced trainers um, we you know we uh, we're Gonna use motivational techniques to train the dog. Everybody knows that these days everybody's very pro positive reinforcement, and that's a you know that's that's legit. That's the way you should train a dog. The problem comes when the dog doesn't then perform these behaviors that you know for sure that they want to do. And the traditional method then is okay, we say all right, now we apply the correction. Now we're gonna you know compel the dog in one way or another. And the problem is that a lot of you know balance training prior to that doesn't prepare the dog for that correction, and so the dog doesn't actually know what to do with the pressure that we apply in that moment, because usually people are using pressure in any form as a stopping signal along the way in their training. And so when the dog, you ask the dog to do something and it doesn't do it, applying another stopping signal is not likely to make the dog do what you wanted it to do. It's gonna, you know, further stop the dog from doing anything. So Nipopo is just remembering that and remembering to include some form of negative reinforcement in the learning phase. Mm -hmm. And there's loads of way people do that. You know, there's, you know, some people get right into it Using negative reinforcement to teach some people it's a balance, depending on the dog and what you do. For me, you know, I like to start with puppies, so it's a lot of positive reinforcement, and then I have to somehow find a way to layer pressure over behaviors they already know. but the the punchline is that if you want to be able to compel your dog using pressure when the dog one day doesn't perform the behaviors, then you need to have included pressure in some form of learning phase along the way so the dog understands, okay, I know that that's a compelling action to complete the task that I've been asked to complete. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's Nipopone in a nutshell. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Okay, so to kind of, to break it all down, I wanna to talk to you about an issue that I'm currently going through with Rika. Okay, So cool. Rika is very smart uh, and we're training. I love to train, she loves to learn, but our, a big problem that we're running into is when we're in the living space and I'm going to put on her collar and her leash to go outside. And she's kind of, and we always train tr- train this with positive reinforcement, treat, click, treat, click, click. But like, it's beca- we, we're always going outside, but now mm-hmm. she's being super stubborn and she'll run away and like, you know, really make me work to put the collar on her to go outside.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: she knows that, you know, the last resort will be me going to get a treat and having to give her the treat in order to get her to put the collar on. Yeah, so, yeah.
1: Uh, help me. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, there's probably some layers to that. Um, uh-huh. So yeah, there's probably some layers to that. I think that uh, normally we would say that if the, the collar, for me, you gotta have some sort of window open, window closed kind of indicator that training is available, right? And so it would be if you're going outside now, collar represents to the dog, this is your opportunity to go outside and we're going to do training or whatever it is that's going on out there. If the dog's avoiding the collar, then, you know, there could be multiple reasons why that would happen. But the first I would want to ensure is that the training is happening in a way where the dog wants to be a participant of that, right? Because if she's avoiding the collar, it's possible that, that she's like, hey, I don't want to be involved in that training, which seems unlikely. Um, the other thing that is, you might have been quite well trained by her, that, she can manipulate you into the chasing game right um and then the ultimate like uh reinforcement for coming in and that's what she's coming in to get right so like it's probably i mean it fits totally it's very rare to find anything in dog training that doesn't fit within anything that's doing being done well. It doesn't fit within the Nipopo template, but uh, a pressure at that time is probably not the right way to go. I would start, you know, showing that as more of a like that the collar is a gateway to things that you want to do. And I'm not going to pursue you. Like if you don't want to go train and provided our training is being done correctly and done in a way where the dog, you know, wants is a willing participant and, or is even, more of a one thing that we kind of feel really strongly about is the active dog and the reactive handler so we kind of we almost want the dog to be pushing us to say like hey i want to go train rather than me saying come on let's go train and it sounds like that's the sort of situation that you're in so what i would certainly be doing is outwaiting that dog right so i'll be like hey you can chill out in this house um and do nothing by yourself being a malinois that's That's not going to fly. Mm -hmm. She's going to need to do these things. So you go, I'm going to wait. I'm going to outweigh you. And I'm going to, I'm going to wait here with the collar on and you're going to come to me and you're going to show me you're active. And then that is the gateway that will go to training. And like Mm -hmm. I say that, you know, the key to that is that the training is motivational and the training is in the interest of the dog. Um, Mm -hmm. Because so long as the dog wants to get to that training, you just make putting this gear on is the gateway to do that. In -hmm. fact, I, like I personally do the opposite um, with young dogs, Uh, with young dogs, I have a collar that's on Them in the house like a little snap buckle collar and then I take that off and that to them says like hey the restaurant is open this is your opportunity to begin training um, because ultimately for the dogs that I you know want to train I want them to eventually work with no gear on so you know I like to compete I, I, I play in PSA and once you're out of the level one you're in the level two the dogs actually naked on the field so I want the indicator to my dog to be when I've taken your collars off that means that it's time to work like this is a huge time of expression they get an opportunity with puppies to imprint that right so they wear a little snap buckle closure and it's almost like their first marker of the session is they come to me i call them over whatever i go to them doesn't matter. I click that and they hear the snap buckle open and I click immediately and I present the first reinforcer. So they're like, whoa, taking that off, open the restaurant and now we're into action and now we can play. So that's, you know, that's kind of my long version of saying I would not be pursuing your dog and saying like, hey, come over here and get that." I'll be sitting down and presenting it and being like, hey, the opportunity to work is here. And like I say, so long as your work is, you know, I watch your videos, the dog's having a great time in the work. So the dog wants to work, right? So So really,
0: it's, I I just want to interrupt you here. It's to, it's not even um, to go and train. It's also to go potty.
1: Yeah, right.
0: Okay. Yeah. And, and also I know when she does have to go to the bathroom because she'll go over right by where the gate is and just sit Uh
1: there.
0: I know Uh she has to go. And uh, the past, I think like two days ago, she was giving me a hard time. And then I just was like, all right, you're not going outside. Yeah. But like, yeah, I mean, I, I want to take her out to go to the bathroom. So I don't
1: have
0: yeah, to yeah. like, you are yeah, going party yeah, yeah. now. Like you're going to go. Yeah, now. yeah,
1: for sure. So then, you know, I would front load that and make it a recall within the house so that you, under any circumstances can call her over and it, it, it you know, all these things that we don't want to be, it sounds like you're kind of worried about that being in the position of she won't come unless I have the treat. Right. -hmm. Um, And so I would never put it like in this learning phase, how old is she?
0: She is nine months.
1: Yeah. Cool. So like, while you still have the opportunity, I would in this learning phase of never asking her to do anything unless you have already prepared the opportunity for that reinforcement so mm-hmm. when you decide that it's time to go outside I would at that moment have some form of reinforcer on me and call her over and be like I have it it's available like you didn't see me get it, it you don't have we don't have to go through the ritual of the old pet dog wave the bag year around like I have it I'm going to call you over and then I'm going to produce it and you want it to be a conditioned response where she's like yeah I hear that it's a guarantee of reinforcement and then when she's really got that ingrained you go to a variable schedule on that
0: yeah Okay, that's really interesting that you say that and it just clicked for me. Because her recall is really good. Yeah, we I mean, we work on it all the time. It's when I'm holding the it's like, she's seeing that, like, this is an opportunity to to get more treats like, Mm -hmm. you know, have the I'm holding the collar. And when I just call her to like switch rooms or, I mean, she she does follow me a lot. Um, she comes over no problem. I think yeah. yeah. starts seeing the equipment.
1: Yeah.
0: All right. Let's (laughs) let's start the game.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things you would say, you'd say then that your dog understands that that, that collar means that I'm just going to go out on a boring go outside to potty. And I don't want to do that. Or, or I think more than likely, if I had to guess without having seen any of it, I would guess that she enjoys the, the chase me around, try and put that collar on sort of game. Right. Without yeah. having seen it, I'd, I'd be comfortable to make that guess. So I think, um, yeah, the way to be would be lots of dry reps. Like I think one of the issues that we have with dogs is we, we, we often really quickly teach something and then only use it when we actually need to use it and so then the dog goes like oh okay this is the real situation I, I read the play prior and now i know what's coming so using it sort of in changing the context so that she can't find the pattern so you could carry that collar pick it up t- from time to time and just pick up the collar click and then she'll come running over and takes the food right and then she's not going out she's just continues to be free in the house. And you pick up the collar and you show it to her and you click and she comes over. And then eventually the idea is, you know, classical conditioning, new signal takes the power of the old signal. When you pick up the collar, she goes, you're about to click and she comes running over. And when that's ingrained, and that's when you can go to a variable schedule of that. And like, sometimes you click and sometimes you don't. And what you want is to do that. Like if you're going to take her out three times a day, You want to do that 10 to 15 times a day and only three times does it actually result in the collar being put on and the dog being taken outside. And that way she never specifically goes like that is, she can't be sure of the outcome. The only outcome that she's sure of is a learning phase where you holding the collar she sees that you click she comes over gets reinforcement and then the first few times you do that there'll be this awkward like are you going to put the collar on me now and you go nah like i just mm-hmm. was doing that and then when you ingrain that then you can go here's a collar on and now the food comes right so then it becomes a new sequence of like i hold the collar i show it to you i click you come to me i put the collar on and then you get the payment right and mm-hmm. so that's kind of a little bit outside the normal chain like normally we would say we call the dog over the dog gets the collar put on you click and then you pay for that but the click was bringing the dog to you right and now Mm -hmm. then the idea then is the dog's in this mindset of what what follows the click is my reinforcer my reinforcer is getting the collar put on and then the food gets in so that having the collar put on is part of the picture of reinforcement to the dog so she's now doubly motivated right so when she puts a collar on she'll genuinely have the feeling of like i was just reinforced like putting that collar on actually made me feel as though I got my reinforcer, right? Because it came Uh after the click and became after the click, but before the food was delivered. So that becomes a necessary step in there. And then, like I say, you go to a variable schedule of that and it actually will get strengthened. A lot of people get kind of worried when they say, like, I don't want to be doing that forever, right? Mm -hmm. Like you don't want to be going through that process over and over and you don't have to, what happens is the dog then like that becomes a, you know, a conditioned response, the dog goes, right. This is what leads to that. And then when you break that chain one day, the dog's like, whoa, like that's not, that's not what I was expecting to happen. And that causes a dopamine spike. Variability in reinforcement is what causes like big dopamine spikes. And then the dog will be like, whoa, Every time you hold that collar, I should come flying over to you to find out whether I'm going to get reinforcement, and that will make it more exciting for her because it's not a guarantee of reinforcement. Sometimes we can kind of bore dogs a little bit by over-reinforcing them, where it's like, "Yeah, you definitely get it. Yeah, you definitely get it." The dog goes, "Yeah, I know what it's going to be," but when they're not always sure, that's when they come flying, and that's like, "Am I going to get it or not?" Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, thanks.
1: so that should work. We'll see. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, so just to recap. Um, I'm going to go get the collar, call her Mm -hmm. over, click reward, not put it on her. Do that Mm -hmm. 10, 15 times a day, Mm -hmm. but only go out three times.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Rough. Yeah. That should work. Right. And then you build that pattern. You are just coming over to get your reinforcer and she'll come flying.
0: Okay. Awesome. So, um, next thing I want to touch on is, um, just why corrections are so important when we're working with our dogs and, um, Uh, motivating our dogs and correcting and yeah. How does it all work?
1: I think. Yeah. So I think, you know, you kind of answer the question in the word. Why is a correction so important is that we're making the dog correct. Right. And so a lot of the times, the things that we're teaching the dogs, it depends on, you know, the purpose of the dog. Right. So even a pet dog, a lot of the little tricks and cool behaviors a dog might have, we would say there's no reason I would ever want to compel those behaviors because they're just little fun things. Right. Fair enough. Mm -hmm. No worries. But at some point, there's a behavior that every dog needs that is like needs to happen when it's when you need it to happen. And let's say in pet dogs, that's a recall, right? For example, the dog must come back when you call, not negotiable. If you wanna be able to take your dog off leash, it must be able to come back. So the idea of the correction then is that I will, this is a behavior that I absolutely must have happen. And I must layer in the ability to make you correct because if you are wrong, then it's potentially dangerous for the dog, right? So that's the idea of the correction is we make the dog correct. And so, we can't just get to doing that everybody, you know, wants to talk about off leash control and off leash freedom. And there's the truth is that the path to off leash control is a lot of on leash control. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the idea would be via a long line or, you know, e collar, whatever it is, whatever path you decide you want to go with the dog is that we then have to have a learning phase where the dog understands I can escape some form of pressure by performing the behavior that you've asked. Right. And that's escape escape and avoidance training is exactly that, that the dog learns I can escape a pressure, something happens and you know that would be in the learning phase that would be pulling them on the long line so the dog's more interested in something that's out there and you want them to come back let me go back a step and say of course we want to teach everything that we can motivationally right so of course it's easy to teach a positive recall where we say like hey i have something that you want over here come to me and you can get it right and that's fine so long as the motivational maths adds up. So what if you, if you can reward your dog from a zero to 10, if it has hobbies and interests of things at zero to 10, right? If you have food and to your dog food is a seven out of 10, but there's another dog or a bird that's flying past or whatever that's out there and that bird is a 10 out of 10 you don't have a recall, right? Because mm-hmm. you're holding a seven, the dog's chasing a 10 and you say, Hey, come get this seven. The dog goes, no, there's a 10 over here. That's not happening. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's why we would always want to layer some form of pressure so that if we find ourselves in a circumstance where the motivational mass just doesn't add up, we have a way of saying to the dog, like, Hey, but you have to, I can devalue what's out there. Right. I can make you want to avoid doing that. So we start on the leash, right? So the dog knows how to come back. We put them in a position where they're likely to, but not guaranteed. And we we call them. And if they don't, we literally hand over hand, drag them in, right? And it's Mm -hmm. like, here, take your reinforcer that's available to you, right? You escape the pressure of me pulling you in by getting to me. Take the reinforcer, which you never really wanted anyway, but I'm going to offer it to you. And then your real reinforcer is you get to go back to whatever it was that you were doing out there right? Mm-hmm. So it's not like I took, you know, the thing away from you that you're out there interested in. It's that I, I gave you something else. I, I interrupted your access to that other thing. I gave you something else and I let you go back to it, right? So then ultimately that would be the dog is escaping the pressure because you're pulling him in. And then eventually what happens is you call the dog and the dog goes, I know she's only got food and that that's a seven to me and that I'm doing something that is way more interesting to me. And that's a 10 over here, but Mm -hmm. I also know there's no way that she's going to let me stay out here. So rather than escape the pressure that she's going to force me to come back, I can just avoid that and go running back and grab the food and then go back to what I'm going to do. Right? So that's how, that's a correction where we're showing the dog you escape it in a learning phase. And then later that dog chooses Mm -hmm. to avoid it. There can be reasons and ways we would teach a dog to avoid, right? So avoid could be via the volume or the intensity of what we're, the pressure that we're giving. That's possible, but more often than not, the dog will avoid it just because they know how, like they go, okay, this is the chain that's going to happen. She's going to call me. I'm not going to want to come. She's going to hand over hand, drag me back. She's going to put a piece of food in my mouth. Then she's going to release me. How about we just avoid this like drag me in section and the me not wanting to come in section. I just sprint back, grab that food. and I get back to it because I can avoid that whole you know, nonsense in the middle Mm -hmm. and that's the power of the corrections, right? So it gives us the ability to compel the dog in that moment to do what they want to do. And then imagine the the dog is on the long line or is on the e-collar or whatever. And one day you have, your training's insufficient and or you're faced with a scenario that you didn't train for, right? And you think, well, this is not going to work and you call the Mm -hmm. dog and the dog says, no, nah, I'm not like, this is too much. This is an 11 out of 10, right? I'm not coming back for your seven. In that moment, any pressure that we apply, the dog will know, all oh, right, got it. Like I have to come back and I know how to turn off that pressure because there was a learning phase. I know that, that long line, that e collar, whatever it is, when I come back, that will turn off and I'll take my reinforcer and I'll get to go back to work anyway. So that's a correction in that moment, right? Because we made the dog correct. And I think, you know, that's my long answer for why correction is important is that some of the things we teach our dogs, we absolutely need them to do it because the circumstances that we put these dogs in is not natural, right? Like if you live on the farm and the dog runs around, does what it does and comes back for dinner at night, maybe, then yeah, maybe you don't need to correct your dog, right? If the dog Mm -hmm. just lives super harmoniously in where it is, but the positions we put these dogs in, the corrections that we give them, the compelling actions that we give them, is to help them navigate a world that they're not built for, right? So we need to be able to tell the dog like, hey, I know this doesn't seem intuitive to you that you should do this right now. It doesn't seem like the thing you want to do, but I need you to, right? Mm -hmm. And leaving that till the moment where you really need it to happen is not going to work. You need to have a learning phase. You need to teach the dog that pressure so that the dog will do it and know how to turn that pressure off because there is a learning phase. And in that moment, it will work rather than just scare the dog or shut it down.
0: Mm-hmm. And when you're teaching your, the puppies, are you using, um, uh, all leash, uh, what kind of collar? Yeah.
1: yeah. So with puppies, you know, like it's flat collars pretty much all around, right. Or harnesses even. And so it's a lot of like, With young dogs, it's a lot of showing them what you want, right? Because you've got to educate them. And then it's maintaining, like implementing a little bit of pressure in that learning phase. So, of course, what will happen with a young puppy is he's like, you know, I take puppies everywhere. I have them on a harness with a flexi lead, right? And if for whatever reason I need that puppy to come back, for me, I would click because that's, you know, my recall is going to come back and get food. And if for whatever reason in that moment, if I click and the dog doesn't come back, I'm hand over hand dragging that dog in, right? It's my job to keep him safe. I'm not going to let him stay out there. And so that for that puppy is the first learning phase of pressure, right? It's that like, I'll get dragged back. And it's not, people sort of have this, it's really easy to paint people who would train that way as a villain and say, oh, he's going to force his puppy. And it's like, I'm just gonna drag him back in his harness right yeah. like it's it's not not it's, that big of a deal yeah like he's dragging me everywhere in his harness anyway like it's the yeah. amount of pressure that he was choosing to put himself in
0: mm-hmm. um and oh, okay hold on i'm gonna go we, we got a bunch of questions for you okay um let's see oh my gosh where do i start Okay. I'm going to skip over the, um, someone's asking about a prong. Do you use a prong collar?
1: Yeah, I use prong collars for sure. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Uh, How old um, do you typically? um...
1: So for me, I I really prefer not to put ages to any training technique or tool. I think it's when the dog is ready for it or when the circumstance, you know, dictates it. Right. So Mm -hmm. I think that sometimes in dog training, we're really overly prescript and it's not, it's not helpful to the individual dog because, you know, I would say a lot of tools we're not going to use until we're ready to layer that pressure in. And that day for some dogs may actually never come. Right. So like some dogs may never need that and other dogs may need it at a very young age. And it depends on how quickly you need to be able to compel behaviors, right? That would decide. Mm -hmm. So is the dog ready for it? And do I actually need this to happen right now, right? Like, so that would be lots of the factors. And it's the same as when you're teaching any behavior. A lot of people in dogs get really caught up around the idea of like, how many reps and for how long? And you go. Well, I don't know. Like the dog will, the dog will dictate that. Right? And the dog mm-hmm. shows us that he's confident in that. We'll go to the next step. And it's the same as using any sort of prong collar, e any form of tool. Would be like when do we need it? When is it the tool that we need to use? And prong collar has so many functions. You know, is are we going to use it as a negative reinforcement tool? Are we going to use it as a punishment tool? You know, what's our intent intention here? And what are we trying to teach to the dog? So that's my again long answer for yeah when the dog's ready right
0: so to um piggyback off that boomerang the sharp dog is is asking um i'm correcting with a prong uh, correcting with a prong sometimes causes her to snarl try to bite me Mm. what do i do yeah
1: okay oh there's probably not enough information to give good advice on right so like if you are if your dog is uh if you think you're correcting with the prong and your dog turns and snarls and tries to bite you, you're probably not correcting at that moment. You're going into battle. Right. And, and that's one of the things that I absolutely never, ever want to do with my dog is go into battle with my dog. Right. Like, you know, I would say that, you know, to speak really frankly about anyone that's dog is doing that to them and if it's your dog and we can, yeah, you know, there's all these things that we would talk about genetic issues and environment issues. So we don't know any of the history. Right. But if your dog is growling and snarling at you, I would say that their interpretation of the pressure you're using is unclear to them. Right. Because it seems to them like, so, you know, negative reinforcement, let's talk about that. Right. Negative reinforcement is uh a mild discomfort that is turned off via a specific behavior, right? Now imagine you're using a prong collar and you intend to intend to teach a specific behavior to a dog and you use too much pressure, right? You you hurt the dog and the dog decides, Hey, like, I'm not cool with that. You need to stop it and comes at you. And like, cause it's clear, especially by a prong collar, you're, in, you're holding the leash. Like it's very clear to the dog that you're doing it. And if your relationship with the dog is such that the dog isn't willing to accept that from you, as well as if you're asking something that's unfair or if there is no other clear path to the dog out of that pressure, you could, the dog could decide the path out of this pressure is by biting you. Right. And the problem is they're right. So if you are nagging at the dog or you're correcting the dog for whatever reason, and the dog decides, hey, that's unacceptable and turns around and starts barking, snarling, growling, trying to bite you, and you stop, well, there it is, right? The dog escaped the pressure by trying to bite you. Remember what I said when we am talking about that recall? Eventually, the dog decides, I will just avoid that pressure, right? And so the real danger then is when you clip up your dog to the prong, eventually the dog will bite you because the dog goes, hey, I know that we're about to go through this whole fight, And it finishes when I bite you, how about we avoid the fight and I'll just bite you, right? So it's not to say that the prong is a bad tool. It's to say that the way that it is used sometimes is not, it is not always the right tool and it's not always the right time to use that tool. So like if we say like, would uh, would you use a prong on an aggressive dog? Yeah, of course I would, absolutely but in a very specific way as part of a overall training technique, right? Like a whole plan and the prong will just be a very small part of that. So I think unfortunately sometimes, you know, especially these days when we like with so much half information around when people would say, do you use a prong and aggressive dog treatment? Yes, absolutely. Okay, cool, I'm gonna put this prong on, bang, 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 right? And then the dog goes, whoa, this is not part of an overall training plan. This is just you smashing me with this prong. I'm gonna stop you doing that, right? So that's kind of the issues that we can face with uh, any form of pressure is that whatever path the dog decides to turn it off, if it is successful in turning it off, it will continue to do that as well as potentially avoid that pressure in the future right so uh you know that's one of the things we often see is sometimes you know especially i work with a lot of uh police and military dog handlers and sometimes you see the relationship isn't there between them and the dogs really do see their handler as some sort of opposition right and especially guys are strong and they're used to you know they they do have incredibly tough dogs right and so they that are designed to you know have been bred to be able to withstand that kind of pressure and it's not uncommon to see the dog a lot of people will refer to you know those dogs as handler aggressive and, and, and for sure, handler aggression can be a genetic trait. Like absolutely. That's a possibility. It can be, but more often than not, it's learned in that you have been unclear with the dog as to what you want. The dog's gotten angry at you and then that has stopped the pressure and the dog goes, well, that's what you wanted.
0: Mm -hmm. And it's
1: actually really sad. Like, I, one of the times I, at, a, at an event when I explained this to a, a handler and explained this is why his dog was handler aggressive and was actually trying to bite him. I was like, the dog loves you, man. Like the dog sleeps on his bed. It was just in a really specific circumstance in a really specific environment that the dog would do that. And I was like, you know, you have to understand you've putting this dog in a really horrific place in his mind where he thinks his only option to survive is to bite his master right? So, but like that, that will happen. That if, if he's convinced he's trying to kill me and for whatever reason, this is the circumstance that brings that on. If that's the decision the dog has made and he decides he's going to, the only way to turn that off is by biting you, you have to sort of put it yourself in that dog's shoes and think what a horrific situation be You're the person I care about and love the most in the world and we work together, we spend all day together, but in this circumstance, I have to bite you or you'll kill me, right? Yeah. If that's what the dog has decided. Yeah. So we've got to use all these kinds of things really uh, intentionally and, you know, with a clear purpose. And like I say, any form of pressure, like especially most of us, like the people involved in Nipo po, we get asked to talk about these sorts of things. And it's, I'm happy to talk about corrections and why they're important and all those sorts of things. But we have to remember that it's just one piece of a big picture of training because to just whack a tool on a dog and go straight to the correction We can't do that because you can't make a dog correct when you haven't taught him anything in the first place, right? Remember that was the the cornerstone of it is we're gonna make the dog correct. So we can't just go to doing that. We've got to develop a relationship. We've got to show the dog what we do want. And then we can say, hey man, I don't want you to do that. And the dog will go, yeah, cool, got it. Because like, I like you for starters and you have shown me paths to success elsewhere in the path uh, in the past I believe you there's a path to that now and I'll I'll take that path rather than just having a fight with you over this one thing I want to do
0: so for for Boomerang um, what do you think is the best approach do you think she should take off the prong and yeah
1: so I would leave that prong for a little while and you know like I would have to talk to her for an hour to find out what the real issue is and the circumstance and everything in which it's going down. I would hate to give advice that, especially in aggression, I would hate to give advice from a a comment that would lead to someone being bitten, but I would definitely get in touch with a trainer that would look at that whole picture. and, Mm -hmm. And certainly if you like one thing I like really powerful dogs, like that's my shtick. I like dogs that are willing to bite people and are willing to bite their handler and are willing to go to war as a result. I never want to actually go to war with them. Like I want, mm-hmm. to, I want to manage them in a way where they clearly see we're a team and we're yeah. working together. We are not, like to those kind of dogs that are happy to bite you. I'm like, hey, we are working together, my man. And I'm going to give you some inputs, some of them physical, that are going to help you succeed with me. Because I never want to have to get into a battle with the dog. No way. Mm-hmm. You know, of course that happens. There's moments where the dog, yeah, you know, that always happens. But it's 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 never the path that we want.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Uh,
1: <laughs> Are we getting Wait. swamped?
0: Never not chasing cats. Yeah, we have a bunch on. Um, okay, we have a couple um, reactivity questions, but uh, okay. let's go with this one. My dog's never not chasing cats.
1: Help. Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> So <laughs> the, the There's a lot to understand there, right? Like I'd say that the dog is probably not, never not chasing cats. And so, you know, with a a predatory chase type issue like that, right? There's a lot of, there's a lot of aspects that could go into that. And, and, and we would talk about a program that would involve some form of differential reinforcement of other behaviors. We would need to reinforce when the dog is not chasing cats, which would be at some (laughs) points, but be in the presence of the cat. And then like, with that, we we would then, if if pressure was what they're asking about, like so, they're going to use a prong collar. We would then need to know: have you taught an alternate behaviour? So what you could do, and certainly what I have done with my own dog and cats, because my Malinois loves to chase cats every opportunity he gets, is that the cat to him is a trigger for a behaviour. So in the, I've taught him a behaviour, and for me, the only place he would experience a cat is like walking the streets. So for him, he has a, a heel that's not his competition heel. So he has a you know, a flashy competition heel he does on the left. He has a flat kind of walking down the street, loose leash walk on the right, right? So to him, the presence of a cat is a trigger to perform that behavior. And so he sees a cat and he's like, hey, that is my command to perform that right side heel. And that has been first taught absent the cat, then in the presence of a cat at distance where he, he sees, I make sure he sees the cat. Then I give him that command, right? New signal, the cat, old signal, the command. And then I use whatever amount of compelling force it was to get him into that position. I reinforce him when he's there. Right. So then that becomes, and then the if he were, if we're walking down the street and he sees a cat and he hits the end of the line, no matter what collar he's wearing, flat collar, slip, leash, prong collar, doesn't matter. That pressure to him is a correction for not, healing on the right because the command was seeing the cat to heal on the right. right? And so that pressure then acts as a, like, oh yeah, I didn't avoid it. I hit it. I took it. And now I've got to come back. I know how to turn that off by going into that right side. So that would be one technique for dealing with that predatory chase because I want predatory chase for in other circumstances. I don't want to punish it away. The other option you would have then is to just punish the behavioural away. So like a lot of the times with predatory chase, depends on how committed the dog is to it and how much you can work proximity and control what it would be chasing. And sometimes you can just stop progression altogether, isolate the dog and punish for that behaviour. And that, you know, for most people is probably the path to go down. But, you know, the the specifics of how that would go, again, depend on, Your circumstance, your environment, your relationship, the training you already have with the dog, and your capacity to deliver that punishment. You know where is it going to happen, and how? How can you stop the progression? I.e., the chasing of the cats. Right? Like that's the most important thing. Is that if your dog chases cats, don't let him chase cats. Like you have to stop that Mm -hmm. and stop it physically. And like we would say that you know stopping the progression of the behavior. Don't let him be before it's reinforced if a dog chases cats and catches them, you're in big trouble, right? Because that's highly reinforcing. And so, you know, you're really going to be motivated to do it again. Mm-hmm. And and especially with predatory chase stuff like that, a lot of the times they don't actually need to catch it. If you were to ask the dog, why are you doing that? He wouldn't have a good answer for you. He's just like, literally thousands of years of evolution has led me to do this, right? So it can be a difficult thing, not impossible, but a very difficult thing to get rid of. Almost certainly very, very difficult bordering impossible to use just using some form of differential reinforcement. When people say that they're able to just use differential reinforcement in a chase situation like that, I would normally say, chasing probably wasn't that bad to begin with. Right. And, mm-hmm. and so, cause normally something that's hardwired genetically like that, no amount of positive reinforcement to another behavior is going to stop it. You get yeah. it at some point need to say like, Hey man, you can't do that. He's, he's, and he's a reason to avoid it. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, someone asked about, um, uh, leash reactivity and then also, uh, getting neutrality to strangers in public. Mm.
1: First. Yeah. So um, neutrality of strangers in public is, is a, a good one. I, I raise a lot of puppies. I, I um, and I, I, I do the opposite of what people kind of say and that like the working dogs that I'm involved with, a lot of people say, you know, never let anyone pay your dog and all this. You should be the only source of, I don't mind that. Like I'm, I'm cool. Like I want my dog to find value in people. What mm. I do though, is like, I don't let people reinforce my dog other than any sort of praise that they would give them. Right. So when I'm out with my dog and people will say, Hey, can I pay you? I'm like, yeah, sure. All right. Go for it. And then while they're patting him and I don't let it go for long. Right. I just have it like a couple of seconds. I'll click or Mark or whatever. And the dog comes back to me and takes reinforcement from me. Right. And so the end result is that my dog then sees people and is like, Hey, I'm glad you're here but only because you lead to reinforcement from him. You yourself are not the reinforcer. You are the announcement that it's possible from him. So in the end, the dog, like what you have with a puppy is that a puppy is, you know, know, he runs up to everybody and gets a couple of pats and then clicks and comes running back to you and you give him food. And people go like, that's the worst. You're, you're, You're reinforcing your dog for running up to those people. And I go, yeah, 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 it's fine, right? But then eventually a day comes where your puppy sees these people And looks at you and goes, do we have to go through the whole process? Like, should I run out to them and then they pat me and you click and come and give me food? Or do you want to just cut all that out and just give me the food now? And you go, yeah, man, like, let's cut all that out. And he sees the people and he looks at you and he go, click, here's your food. The dog goes, right. So then what happens is the dog then is like, hey, I like people. People are cool, but they don't actually have any value to me other than the value that they announce is available from the handler. So if you're starting fresh, that's a great way to build neutrality. So my, you know, my own Malinois, that's what he does. He he likes people, people like, but he's like, you're valueless other than your presence. So like, I'm not going to harass you for anything. You know, if your dog really liked being pat and cuddles, that might backfire on you. Like if if the value of what the person is providing, is more than what you provide, then, you know, that system won't work. So you need to maximize what you're providing. Um, the other thing is, you know, neutrality is sometimes a lot of people, you know, again, just use that term, sort of go into battle with their dog over things that they could just teach the dog. There's a pathway to get. So if your dog is social, usually when people say reactivity, they kind of mean they secretly mean he looks aggressive, but he's actually social about it. Cause usually they say aggressive when they mean aggressive. Right. Mm -hmm. So if the dog is just like desperately trying to get to people, you can show him, Hey man, I'll let you do that. Right. Because if it's safe and appropriate to do that, you can but there's a gateway and that gateway is a behavior that I need from you. So we show to the dog, like, you know, more often than not when we see people working sort of leash reactivity to people, especially if it is, you know, whether it's a a problem behavior or they're okay with it. um, A lot of the times you see people like they've got their food as a reinforcer and the dog's desperately trying to get those people and they are like trying to stuff food in the dog's mouth and they get the dog to sit, and they're like, take this food. And the dog's like, I don't want your food. I'd like, and it's this big fight. Like I never fight with a dog over taking a reinforcer. That, that's, that's insanity for me. If I'm, tr- if I'm fighting with a dog over taking it, he doesn't want it. it. What's really reinforcing is getting to go see those people. So I call my dog and I'm, I'm you know, by hook or by crook, I make a behavior happen, whether it's sit, down, step, whatever, right? And then I go, cool, like your reinforcer is go see those people. And so the dog then goes, right, when I see people I want, there is a pathway to getting that right and so instead of it just being off the table because if it's off the table then we have to punish it and we can't let it happen and of course it will happen sometime when we don't mean it to and that will put it on a variable schedule and actually strengthen it so like if we're going to punish it we must be 100 percent consistent and, and never allow it to happen which you know doesn't happen so what i want is the dog to say like hey there's that person i desperately want to get to those people i know a pathway to achieving that and then they become They look back to the handler and they're like, I want that. Tell me how I can get it. Give me the work that will make that available to me. And then you, you have to convince them that that's true initially by letting them go to the people a lot. And then later it becomes a variable schedule where they go like, hey, I want to go to those people in the same way. I know you have the ball when you're doing obedience and you go, yeah, cool. I need you to do this, 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 and this. And the dog goes, got it. Like, can I go to the people now? And you go, nah. Mm -hmm. variable schedule tomorrow, maybe. Mm -hmm. And they'll like, ah, got me. We'll try again tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So as I say, like all those techniques, they're kind of uh, minimizing the battle you'll have with the dog by just sort of working together and that clear communication. I I really think that that clarity is probably the most important thing in any dog training. And so by saying that, like, Hey man, here's your clear path to getting what you want. More often than not, the dog will be like, sweet, got it. Why not? Mm -hmm. Why would I, why would I fight with you when there's a clear path to getting what I want?
0: Mm -hmm. I love that answer because it's, it's um, just very well-rounded. And I think, I I think a lot of the times we're so stuck on the rules, like don't pet my dog, like, don't do this. Like, we're not about that. Like, this is, this is the way we think Um, instead of, okay, it could be like this. Yeah. Yeah, You know, let them be social, let them figure it out. But it's,
1: it's, especially uh, in the biting dog space. It's this real, like some dogs are real aggressive. Like, and some of the, the good biting dogs that I like, they're a one man show and that nobody else can touch them. And that's fine. Like that. Some dogs are like that. That's fine. But a lot of people in the working dog world have it like, no, he's going to be my protection dog. So, or he's going to be a, you know, whatever. No one can ever pat him. He can only see value from me. He must be aloof to other people and that kind of stuff. And it's like kind of building yourself some liability there. Right? Like my dog, he knows there's no, there's not that much value in people. And, like, he'll hang out with people, it's fine. He's kind of neutral to them. And if I need my dog to always be suspicious of people and not allowed to ever find value in hanging out with people in order to be able to protect me or to bite when I say, I have big problems in my bite work and development there. So, like, my issue if you need your dog to re- really be aloof and of everybody <coughs> in order that they will bite everybody when you need them to your issue is not that you've made your dog aloof. Your issue is the way that you have developed the biting in that, right? So like, Mm -hmm. you know, as an example, my dog will happily be patting and hanging out with people and then I can point at someone and say, bite him, and he'll nail them. And then I can tell him to let go and he'll be like back to hanging out with them, right? So, Mm -hmm. but like I said, there's genetic components to that. So I wouldn't say that anybody who does that is wrong or anybody who's, you know, protection dog can't be pat by random people or whatever is wrong. Every dog's different, but that's, for me, that's important. I think like my dog, she's still got to be a dog. 99% of the time, he's just like my dude that I hang out with. I don't Mm -hmm. need this like weapon that's always, always on.
0: Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is there's a chance dogs can do protection, can do um, bite sports and also be friendly and like act like
1: pet dogs. Absolutely. I've, I've got the evidence of it sitting just behind this screen. Right. Um, like I said, there's a huge genetic component to that. Like that's a long, long conversation that we could have, you know, with multiple people across multiple topics, but absolutely it's possible if the training is correct and the genetics are correct.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. I can't believe it's already um, almost an hour. Are you good on time? Pat? Yeah. I got
1: all day. Yeah. yeah. Okay.
0: Awesome. Well, not
1: all day, but i got plenty. Of time. <laughs> um,
0: okay. How to face food rewards and create, duration in um in training how
1: to build duration build duration and was it fake hey, how to, fade how to food fade rewards? yeah so like on food rewards you would say most of us in dog training these days are starting with what i would use the definition of a direct reward right so a, a direct reward, you know there's a lot of definitions the, the way i would say it is that the pursuit of the reinforcer. So, if you've got the food in your hand, the pursuit of it brings on the, the behavior. So, you know, imagine where teaching dogs to sit, people, you know, they always lure the dog up and butt hits the floor. But the truth is, it takes a little while for the dog to understand, like, what their, their body is doing in relation to the reinforcer. Because at the start, when you're luring, the dog's just trying to get the food, right? Mm-hmm. And that's fine, luring's fine. But If you want to call your dog trained, especially if you intend to go into competition or have real life behaviors happen when you want them to, you must get to an indirect reward. And the indirect reward, by my definition, is when the dog is performing a behavior, right, in order to receive a paycheck that may or may not come, right, and that the paycheck is not necessarily visible to them. So, where people go wrong is they they lure for ages, and then they just go right, "Okay, I've done hundred reps. It's time to get rid of this lure and they just stop luring. And the dog's like, "Hey, now the picture of the behavior is the lure, right? So there has to be a progression. and it's it's starting to fade that lure as soon as possible, right and starting to fade the the, the direct reward the idea that the dog is just trying to get the reinforcer, you really want to have a plan for not staying in that mode. You really want to as quickly as possible get to the indirect reward where the dog knows, okay, like I am doing this in order to earn a paycheck. I don't see it on you, but I believe that it could be there. Now when we're going to ask our dog to do things and have faith in us, like dogs don't just trust people, right? So like in order for a dog to believe that something could be true, it has to have at some point been true. So like if I'm going to say to the dog, Hey, I need you to heal and I'll pay you with the ball that's over there. I can't, or or the food that's in my pocket. I can't expect that he's going to heal in that rep as well as he did in the rep where I had the food right here showing it to him. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's going back in your training, even though you think your dog knows something, you have to go like, Hey, you can do this and be paid in a way without you realizing there's a paycheck available. And that's the progress to fading food rewards is that you have to then have the food reward but have it somewhere else where in the start, the dog sees you put it there and you say, you know, like here is your bowl of food. I'm putting it on the ground right here and via the leash, I'm going to make you sit and I'm going to ask you to sit. And if you don't, I'm going to compel it because we've never shown this picture before. And as soon as you do, I'm going to release you and you get the food and then it will be like, okay, but now it's around the corner. Okay. Now you didn't see me put it there and you get to these progressions to where the dog's like, Hey, I've never asked you to do stuff without having the possibility to reinforce you. So trust me, it's there, it's somewhere. You just don't know where it is. And that's kind of the beauty of markers, right? So like when we're loading a marker, we usually say you've got kind of one to two seconds, like when you click to deliver the food, click, deliver the food. But once it's loaded, you have a much longer period. I mean, like, I've heard people say it's up to eight seconds, right? To maintain a conditioned response. So I can ask the dog to do something, click, and then I've got eight seconds. Geez, I could get down to my car and get the ball out of my car and give it to my dog within eight seconds. And him understand what he did back there was what he's getting paid the ball for, which is down here, right? So using clear markers, having that clarity of communication is the way to fade the food lure. You've got to have a, a plan for it. and Take a step back. Don't be afraid to take a step back and show the dog like, hey, It's here. I promise it's here. The other thing you can do is kind of like trick the dog a little bit by baiting. Like if you're dealing with a pet dog, one of the things that, you know, I stole this idea from a friend of mine, Jay Jack is like by Easter egging the walk. So if you have an issue of your dog, not stopping at the corner where you want him to stop, you can prior to the dog going with going with the dog, go and put your reinforcer there ready for you. So you leave the house and the dog looks at you and goes, you don't look like you have any reinforcers on you. You don't have the treat pouch. You don't have whatever. You get there. You say to the dog, hey, I need you to do this behavior. The dog goes, no, I'm not doing that, right? Because you didn't bring your reinforcer. That's the time we would give a correction. We compel the dog to do it. And then we go like, surprise, I had it hidden here all along. And the dog then goes, whoa, could be anywhere. It could be any time. And like I say, you only have to do that a few times. It's not like you're doing that every day. You have to do that a few times before the dog goes, that could be. Going to happen now. Mm-hmm. And then it's just, you know, variable reinforcement, maintaining the, the schedule of reinforcement so the behavior stays alive and you're home and host from there.
0: Great answer. Love that Easter egg. Okay. Anna and Boodle, can you talk about the difference between drive and frustration? For example, a dog that's crazy for tug or fetch, giving commands, and eyes going black.
1: Mm, okay. So, like, drive. <laughs> this is like a five hour conversation. So uh drive is desire, right? So we talk about you know, what drive is that dog in and, and we can really like we can really sort of distill that down by saying, what does your dog want in that moment? Right? What is his compelling action? What what is he what is gonna fulfill him in that time? So drive would be like, you know, a lot of the times when we're playing tug, that's like prey drive. Like that's what we're we're kicking into the idea that the dog wants to in his mind, in his imagination, it's a rabbit. He's chased it. He's struck it. He's biting it. He makes sure it's dead. And then he's going to parade it like, yeah, I won. And then he's going to eat it. Right. And so that's the game of tug. We have to kind of find a way to replicate that frustration is known to increase drive right because what we're doing is showing the dog here's what you want but you can't have it just yet until you show me a level of intensity that will get it and so a lot of the times people we talk about building drives real common thing build drive build drive build drive A dog has the amount of drive that it has right what we can do is get them to express it better Right. And we do that by frustrating them or deprivating them. So we'd say, like, he, you, I know you want this tug. And while you're free to do whatever you want, I can uh, wave this tug and you'll like show some interest in it and then strike it. But if I back backtie you and wave this tug around and do it, like, do my sexy dance with the tug in front of you, that will make the dog like, should I really want that? And then you, you can then give him that and he goes, all right, that level of intensity and in drive is what led to me getting it. That's the level of intensity of drive I should show in order to earn that reinforcer. And then through careful training, that's how we then teach behaviors and we can carry over the level of drive. The dog shows for the reinforcer in to you know, manifest as the level of drive, the dog displays in the work by using frustration to build drive. We should we definitely can and should, but there's a point of diminishing return where we lose clarity. Right? And like I said, you know, one of the most important things in dog training is clarity, clarity in communication between us, clarity in the mind of the dog. You know, there's, that's, a, that's, a, that's an hour long conversation of what clarity is. But once you lose clarity, you're probably not being very effective in your training anymore. And so by using two, like, and we see this a lot where, you know, particularly in the bite sports where we back tie dogs and we, we, you know, we're using the whip or we agitate them with a stick or whatever it is to really get them as high as we can there can be a point of diminishing return. And for some dogs, that point of diminishing return is because we go so high in intensity that they don't have any more. And they go, oh, well, I give up and I'm not going to show you that intensity anymore and start to go down. And if you were reinforcing reinforce in that moment, then the dog would be like, oh, okay, I shouldn't show my maximum intensity. I should just scale it back down a little bit. So that's a problem. But with some dogs, we go like, this is a usable amount of intensity that's good and clear. And then we can go past that into you've lost your mind and what happens from here is not going to actually be helpful in our training. And we want to surf around that, that top, right? Like where it's still useful, but not that where the dog loses clarity. Mm-hmm. Um, so managing that can be really difficult. And if you book, like I say, the big, you know, big part of everything we talk about in training is the sequencing classical conditioning. So if you regularly put your dog in a back tie and work him to the point of frustration where he loses his mind, eventually, the moment you put him on that back toy, he'll lose his mind, right? Because whether you try and frustrate him or not, because he's just a conditioned response. When I get clicked up here, you're about to do the thing. I'll 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 give you the show. So reduce it. So it sounds like if if she's built too much frustration, it might be helpful to reduce the drive. And there would be a couple of ways you could do that. Sort of like without going into too much detail, it would be reinforcing before the dog loses its mind or waiting for it to lose its mind. And on the way back down where it's clearer again, giving it the reinforcement. And that would be like a drive capping exercise. It's a little bit more complicated than just that, right? Than explaining Mm -hmm. that, but it's about showing the dog, like there's a level of intensity that's useful. There's a level of intensity that's unacceptably low and there's a level of intensity that's unusefully and therefore unacceptably high. Right. Um, And, and where that is on every dog is different. That's within their genetic bandwidth of capability for clarity.
0: Mm -hmm. That's definitely something I will have to work on with Rika because um, she is, is very vocal and we've been working on this. Um, I I conditioned her to uh, know that if she whines a lot, you know, we'd be training in public. I don't want her whining it's like embarrassing Mm -hmm. (laughs) so Mm -hmm. then I throw the ball and now you know when I'm training her exactly Um, so now I'm just trying to figure out that balance of uh, like teaching her that the whining I don't want the whining I know a lot of people like like that she's vocal but for me I do I don't Um, so yeah I'm trying to figure that it's
1: it's a tricky conversation right because a lot of people would say it's a loss of clarity and in some cases it absolutely can be um Mm -hmm. and in other cases it can absolutely be a learned behavior and in in others, it can just be the dog likes to make noise, right? So, like my own dog, for example, is a noisy dog. He in he's vocal. He enjoys barking. Barking is self reinforcing to him. He sometimes just stands around and goes ruff ruff ruff, right? Just because it's fun to do, even though he has no intention of some outcome of that barking. So there's there's lots of ways that it, like when there's whining or vocalization in the work, there's loads of ways that we can. Manage or treat that. So, like, if you're, you know, it, like a positive only technique or like minimum pressure technique would be to manage arousal, right? So, like that. There's a, as I was saying before, there's a certain level of arousal where that is going to happen. And if you wanted to just, um, you know, stay motivational and not ever tip into any sort of like, you know, negative consequence for it, is you would just avoid it. And so you slowly build that arousal level to the point where the dog is like right on the cusp of. You're whining, but doesn't, and then you reinforce and you train at that level. And that'll allow you over time to slowly inflate that balloon where you can stay below the level of arousal that causes that whining. That can be a frustratingly long process and very difficult because the issue is like the moment that you do by accident in build, you go over that and there's a whining or a vocalization in one way or another, you've lost, right? And the Mm -hmm. session, you really, it's very difficult to do anything about that in that moment. The other would be, you know, managing arousal via the reinforcers and the environment, but also giving a consequence for it. And, and like, you need to show the dog in that moment there's a consequence for tipping over into that level of arousal. And so, cap yourself, right? To keep you instead of me managing it via your access to what is causing that arousal, you need to be in control of that yourself. And that would, you know, take on the form of like stopping the progression. Like you're no longer going forward. You're no longer doing this. And isolate the dog, and then you could go into a form of punishment for it, and whether that would be punishment—be you know—the pressure that you use, depending on your technique and how you're going to do it, would determine whether that is uh, a negative reinforcement into the correct behaviour. Because the the picture of the correct behaviour does not involve vocalisation. So you might have to convey to the dog, "Hey, like you're healing," for example. Or imagine the dog sit in a sit, right, and you, the dog starts barks in the sit if you were to afford, like apply some form of pressure and the dog that communicates to the dog, I want you to sit only and sitting does not involve barking, right? So that can be really hard to do. You could do that via pressure, but you can also do it via sort of incompatible behaviors. So you can uh, manage it and hope that it goes away in those overrousing situations by an incompatible behavior, which I've done by like holding a pipe, for example. So like you can't bark or whine while you're holding a pipe. So I can get the dog to work and hold a, a pipe in its mouth and that makes an incompatible behavior. And over time, the hope is that the whining goes away, right? So that can work, not always, but can. And the other thing then is to punish it. So you find a way to isolate the whining absent from the behavior that the dog's doing and go like, hey, you can't do that, right? And there's many forms and ways in which that would happen. So like all these kind of questions, they're never, I could give one answer where you say like, you do this, but that may not work, and you're right? Yeah. And and it depends with everything that the dog, any behavior that we want to get rid of or cultivate, all of it really depends on the mental state of the dog. Like, where is that coming from? Like, why is that dog doing that? And sometimes I don't ever need to address the behavior. I can just take away the reason the dog is performing the behavior and then it goes away by itself, right? So there's there's a lot of you know, many roads lead to Rome. And sometimes the Beth road is the like squiggly one that goes all over the place because mm-hmm. the direct one can sometimes just sort of, yeah, we can stop a behavior or we can start a behavior, right? But it, the, the more successful one is the path of least resistance where we say to the dog, mm-hmm. like, hey, I want to work with you, man. Like, let's, let's do this together. Let's find out why you're doing that and see if we can fix that mentally rather than having to fix it physically.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. I'll check back in with you in, in a month to let you know <laughs> what <how> we're doing <laughs> um boris pale what are your favorite uses for the e-collar uh
1: so everything um so ultimately the e-collar is just a form of pressure we can deliver at distance right and so uh there's not like there's a specific thing that i would teach with the e-collar if i'm in a place where i'm using the e-collar if i'm on a dog where i'm using the e-collar uh you know ultimately if you if you want your dog to be wearing a collar with a lot of pet dog people especially in the states if you can wear an e-collar just kicking around in the streets which you can't do where i am um you would ultimately want your dog to understand the e-collar can take on the form of a correction, right? So that the dog does exactly what you want, has total off leash freedom and complies to your behaviors, not just because he really wants to, but because you've shown him motivationally, but also because you know you can show him that an adversity will come if you don't perform these tasks. And the idea is that we want that into every single behavior. So, like, I don't have a thing that I teach with the e-collar. There's no way I would say, like, this is the e-collar thing that I teach. What I want to do is find a way to layer the pressure of the e-collar over every behavior that I teach so that the e-collar can be used as an aversive that the dog will want to avoid, or the dog can be used as a correction that the dog knows how to work through to perform the correct behavior in order to, you know, uh, avoid feeling that in the future. So, there's loads of things you can do with the e-collar. I mean, everything from, basic recall to you know empowering bite work like i can make biting better by the ear collar and and it's a i think it's sort of one of the most misunderstood and underutilized tools i think that sort of limiting it you know of course an e collar is at the top levels pain compliance it, it, it hurts like hell and the dog goes right got it i'm not i'm gonna stop whatever i was doing but there's a lot of things we can do with it in other forms and as a communication tool where we can layer it over commands and we can communicate really effectively to the dog. And the other thing is it's a tactile feedback. So you can, at a time when your dog can't necessarily hear you, he can feel you, you can reach out and touch the dog. And at the really low levels, like, you know, again, this is a topic I could talk on for hours, but uh, the really low levels of the e-collar are, are you know, they have the function that you give them because it's, it's an input that the dog doesn't understand. So a lot of times people put an e-collar on their dog and they go like, oh, it's not doing anything. And the, the, he can't feel it. Right. And it's like, no, he feels it. It just doesn't have a value to him. He doesn't know what to do with that. And so with those l- much lower levels, before you enter into playing compliance, before the dog feels it and goes, shit, I want that to stop. You can make the dog think, oh, that has a function. That is in this context, the command, and I will turn it off. I will turn off that pressure via performing an action. Or, you know, what some people have accidentally done is they teach the dog, you know, via, a technique that we would use on purpose in some circumstances. Some people teach their dog to willingly endure the e collar, right? Just so that, and and then the problem is if you teach that at a low level where the dog goes like, right, I'll endure this to get what I want. As the levels go up, the dog goes, whoa, like I, I have no choice but to endure this to get what I want. And so you can you can certainly see dogs that get themselves stuck in a loop where they they desperately. Don't want to fill the e collar, but they don't know how, and it appears as though they're seeking it out. But in reality, they've just sort of tricked themselves into thinking it's part of the progression. So, like I say, it's complicated. But there's no one thing I would use an e collar for as answer to the question. It's anything that I need off leash control for.
0: Okay, this is on. Could you discuss about the Chameleon 3 e-collars and the advantages of, buy- of buying it? Do you want to do this? Are you affiliated with the Chameleon?
1: Uh, I'm not affiliated with them, but it's a friend. Um, like I can say, uh, I think that the Chameleon is um, probably the best e-collar out there. I think that it's the, to my knowledge, what I'd say about e-collars is that uh, the Chameleon's the only e-collar I know that was made by a dog trainer. And so, and, and not just made by a dog trainer, made by probably one of the best ever. So, It's a trainer's tool, it has all the functions that as a trainer you would want. So I think that it is absolutely worthwhile getting.
0: Okay, thank you, Diesel. Um, Let's see. Okay. Um, Tracker uh, intimidation, is intimidation normal with mouths? In this case, when mom and dog are by themselves and once dog comes home, comes out to join Tracker, begins to bite mom. Wait, when mom and dad are by themselves, mom and dog, and once dad comes home to join Tracker, begins to bite mom. Hmm.
1: I'm not sure I understand the question well enough to answer it, but I don't know if mom and dad are and who Tracker is.
0: uh can uh can you talk about box feeding
1: yeah um
0: <laughs> this is gonna be a long one
1: <laughs> no we'll but short. i want to so, know um so the box thing is something i learned from Bart. there's loads of people all around me Popo, learn, using that now and everybody's sort of in different fashions and i kind of have my own flair in which i do it um, and we kind of accidentally made it popular on the podcast in the early days. So I, I do a podcast. Um, you know, we're nearly—I think we're 160 something episodes in. But episode four was how to use this box. And you know, I probably wasn't as good at teaching it then, and I didn't realize, however many hundred thousand people have listened to it. So I I, I could have done a better job. And so there's better information out there. And if you go to our Patreon, there's really good, detailed, step by step how to use the box but the idea of the box is that it's just a toughening technique and so the idea is the truth be told is it's kind of like teaching your dog to meditate and 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 and, you know one of the forms of meditation is that we you know people who are bad at meditating right they sit down and they go right like clear your mind um, don't think of anything, focus on your breathing, right? That one thing you're breathing. And for a few seconds, they focus on their breathing and then they go like, where do flies go at night? And then they go, oh, wait, no, I'm meant to be thinking about nothing. And they go back to their breathing. And then a few seconds later, they say, oh, did I shut the front door before I left? Oh, I shouldn't worry about that. And they go back to my breathing. And those people usually say I'm bad at meditation. And that what they fail to understand is like, that's what meditation is. Every time that you choose to focus on one thing, let your mind wander, choose not realize that your mind is not serving you in that moment. You're not serving yourself. Choose to ignore that and come back to the task at hand. That's kind of one bicep curl for your brain. All right. So the idea is that we wanted to find a way to do that with the dog. So what we do is we, we have the dog do a single job of, putting their head in the box, right? And we teach just like we would an article indication in tracking. And in fact, I do use a tracking style article in the box. And all we're asking the dog to do is focus on that. The box is handy because it limits his vision. And so he's really got to focus on that one task. And then what we, you know, sort of kindly do and, to slowly implement is the where the flies go at night so we distract the dog in one way or another and in the learning very early phases we don't mind if the dog looks up and goes oh that's you stamping your feet i'll get back to work then before too long when you stamp your feet the dog's like that's not for me that's not important i'll stay here and i'm going to get paid in here and we trickle food into the box so we're like we're, we're giving a duration uh reinforcer for keeping your head in the box right So the idea is that we're showing the dog with a disposable behavior. we We're not. No one needs to meditate. Like when your house is on fire, nobody sits down and goes like, hmm, right? But the skills that you use through meditating at that moment, you go, this is not important. This is what's important. Let's like, and you're able to call to action. The idea is to do the same with the dog. So we use the box and it's not as though we ever actually need our dog to put their head in the box. It's just a behavior and you can do it with any behavior but I just choose to do it with the box. And you can then show the dog, like, don't worry about that other stuff. In fact, other things happening out there are not for you stay in the task that you're doing. And in that way, we can desensitize and counter-condition the dog to any distraction being a keep-on-going signal. Then we can work that up to being, like, actually scary stuff that isn't ever going to, like, you know, it behoves us, of course, to never actually do anything that could hurt or harm the dog so we have like hey here's something that you would be concerned about or here's something really distracting so we might use a can curtain or a clatter stick or something like that and we show the dog that that noise indicates food is going to come into the box so long as you keep your head in there you just keep ignore that noise and stay on task so for a, a, a pet dog or any dog really what we end up doing them is showing them that some sort of difficulty and struggle is best ignored stay on the task that you're doing in spite of what's going on around you stay on the task that you're doing and reinforcement will come to you we also show them like if we're going to touch them say especially if we're going to hit them with a clatter stick or something like that that they'll later happen in their in their sports we show that that is actually a marker for reinforcement so i touch my dog with the stick and then i throw food into the box and so he goes like oh that hitting with the stick is a good thing it means that i'm about to get reinforcement and of course what happens with the bite work is the dog does get hit by the decoy with the stick. And then he goes like, that's a good thing. I enjoy you hitting me with that. And then he punches in in the bite and gets his reinforcement. Right. So it's a truth throughout the dog. So for pet dogs, it really truly strengthens their nerves. Right. So like every dog has a genetic bandwidth of capability and, and we have to acknowledge that like some dogs on their best day will never be as good as some dogs on their worst day. Right. But what we want to do is get their, their ability to, withstand difficulty struggle right it's to build that to the absolute maximum and have them almost enjoy struggle because they know the struggle will end and that that will lead to some sort of positive reinforcement so you get these dogs that become much more like what we're truly trying to build is just a better version of themselves and now around the world there's probably you know thousands and thousands of dogs that have been doing this box feeding all of them even people who don't follow my advice very well and people who misinterpreted me and do all kinds of crazy things um it still works right like it still works pretty well and 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 if it doesn't work it's kind of no measure for that And it's not a direct you're not going to see like by doing one box session today you're not going to see any improvement this afternoon it's just like a slowly better version of the dog exactly like meditation and breath work in people right it's not going to fix you right now but it's going to make you feel better all around and make you a better version of yourself later on the other thing is that by having those kind of pressures, say for a sport or working dog, for having those kinds of pressures be a keep on going signal, we inoculate our dog against distractions people will use later. Say, for example, right? Like my dog puts his head in the box and I rattle the clatter stick and then I throw food in. Now, of course, as a puppy, I rattle the clatter stick, he's going to look at it, right? And I show that's not for you. And I, I show him, ignore that, keep your head in the box. So when I'm healing now as an adult and some decoy rattles the clatter stick at my dog, for most people, That is a distraction or a motivator and the dog, they're gonna lose their dog in the healing, right? The dog then goes like, that that rattling is for me. That means I should bite because we only ever use the clatter stick in the bite work. Clatter stick, bite work, clatter stick, bite work. So that's what the trick, right? We're gonna rattle and then the decoy is gonna leave the healing and go to the bite work. That's the whole point of why we do it. Well, in the box, if I rattle food in the box, rattle food in the box, I'm showing the dog, when you hear that clatter stick, if you're already locked in a behavior, ignore the clatter stick but it leads to reinforcement so when i'm healing around and the decoy rattles the clatter stick at my dog he may as well be saying to the dog yeah good boy keep going right keep doing what you're doing keep healing really well against your master while he's rattling the clatter stick trying to steal my dog so it's just one of these sort of little tricks you know what i mean and it kind of got out of hand. A lot of people talk about box feeding and there's a lot of people that think it's the dumbest thing in the world, you know, good for them, whatever. Right. But it's got a lot of utility and it's a behavior that uh, you get for free and there's very little fallout from. And, and like I say, there's not a dog I know that doesn't benefit from it in one way or another really nervous kind of scared dogs will get better. It's not that they're going to be the best, but they will get better. Mm-hmm. And even if you have like my dog who genetically is very strong he would have good nerves no matter what happened to him. It's handy because I can inoculate him to things that will be used as a distraction against him later.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's box feeding.
0: Pat, can you, this is the personal request. Can you do an updated box feeding video?
1: Yeah, so I have them So within our Patreon, so like I have an online course and there's heaps of box feeding stuff in there. And okay. within our Patreon, people can pay three bucks and they'll get access to the, the updated version. And it's me in front of the camera explaining it all there. But if you Google like, there's so many people teaching it now if you google it and like even if so within the podcast it's the canine paradigm we have a discussion group on facebook if you get in there and search box feeding you'll be you'll be busy for three days reading and watching Mm -hmm. all the videos and seeing all the information on it so there's heaps of resources out there or you can pay three bucks and watch me do the video Mm
0: -hmm. awesome i I mean i think box feeding uh would be good for everyone that submitted questions.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's always like it's with all these reactivity issues and stuff it's a piece of the puzzle. It's not going to fix your issue, right? Like it's just it's a piece. Um and like I say any opportunity we have to strengthen and toughen our dog's nerves, we should take. And it's a great one to do that and it's one that you can do alone. You don't need any help. And the big thing I should say is the dimensions of the box don't matter please no one message me asking what the dimensions of the box are the box is nominal could be anything it doesn't even have to be a box there's people that use buckets there's people that use pot plants there's people that don't use a box at all and just do it straight to a washer on the floor it doesn't matter just the the concept is the same Mm
0: -hmm. um i have a bunch of people are talking about your podcast where can we um hear more from you where can uh people follow you
1: yeah so um my podcast i do with uh, my good friend glenn cook uh so it's called the canine paradigm and we're on everything uh all the podcast apps uh we have a patreon that people can check out that's got really technical information in there so the podcast is sometimes us just waffling to each other um sometimes interviews and sometimes you know technical dog training stuff but the patreon is just mostly quite technical dog training information three bucks a month gets you access to that or you can pay more depending on what information you want um, my, uh, branding is all, uh, people can find me on Facebook, under kind of my, 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 just my name as well as, uh, operant canine, uh, is my social media on here on Instagram. Uh, Facebook is operant canine and my website is au. And on there, I have a couple of online courses. I have, uh, a thing called the Nipopo long story short, which is like a, a 40 minute video sort of as quick and concise explanation of making you know, Nipopo and how it works, which is probably best for people who kind of understand dog training already. And are just sort of looking for that, like, how does it fit together? The other thing I have is a, like a boot camp study guide on there, which was, uh, you know, prior to the pandemic this year, I was kind of set up to just be doing these boot camps, like five day block training with people.
0: Mm-hmm. And I put
1: together a study guide that was meant to prepare people for that. So we didn't have to do any theory. We could just hook straight into training dogs. They would educate themselves online and prepare their dogs ready for us to just start training um So I had that kind of all put together when the world shut down, and so I decided to just sell that as an online course. So that's on my website as well, and that's start to finish. You could pretty much know nothing about dogs and end up knowing quite a lot if you follow followed that. As well as even if you do know a lot, it's probably a lot of very, very technical information in there that you know sort of might might broaden your perspective on some things. Okay,
0: awesome. And if we go to your link in bio, are is yeah, the that's the there. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, perfect. Yeah. Um, okay. The last question I'm going, we'll take it from gizmo millo resource guarding and seeing me as a resource.
1: Mm, Yeah. Good one. Um, there's a few ways to deal with this, right? So first of all, uh, relationship is the first thing that I would examine. Right. And so like, should your dog see you as a resource is the first sort of question and there might be reasons why the relationship is not in place and the dog sees you as being theirs, right? And that could be problematic. But again, there's a genetic component to that. Like a lot of blue cattle dogs are hardcore resource guarders of their handlers in spite of the relationship and the training and everything else being in place, right? So it's not to say that there is a relationship problem, but there could be, Um the first thing is we've got to sort of identify like what does that resource guarding look like? Like what form does it take? Usually we would say it's against another dog. Rarely do people, rarely if a dog is uh, sort of barking and growling at other people as they come in, rarely do people call that resource guarding of them, right? It's usually when they say that they mean that it's from other dogs, you know, in all behavior that we want to get rid of, the most important thing is that it, the the display of the behavior can no longer be successful. Right? So you, when the dog is resource guarding, you can't let that actually result in them protecting their resource if you want the resource guarding to leave. So, you know, an example, and this is one way I've done it, and don't take this as gospel for anyone that's watching. This is not necessarily the path for your dog. But one of the things I do is I'll back tie the dog. Me and the dog can hang out if I'm the resource. Me and the dog can be hanging out. And I walk another person and their dog close enough in that the dog starts to show that that resource guarding instinct and i don't want the big eruption i just want the very earliest onset of the behavior and the moment the dog does that i leave all right and so the dog is stuck there and his action made him lose his resource because what we don't want is that if he is aggressively protecting his resource the idea is he's keeping that dog away from you Right? Mm-hmm. And in the most extreme circumstances, I could even show the dog the opposite occurs. Right? So when another person and their dog walk in towards me, if my dog shows aggression towards that other dog, not only do I leave him there back tied where he can't do anything, in some cases, and this is the most extreme, I could even walk up to that other dog and pat it. Right? And then the, my dog shows like, shit, my aggressive response just had the total opposite effect of what I wanted it to have. Right. And so that alone can be enough that like a few reps of that done correctly in the right circumstances, setting it all up properly can be enough for the dog to go like, I'm not doing that again because that had the opposite effect of what I wanted. Right. And it's not to say like one or two reps will show you that working, but that doesn't worked, Right. Like you got to, this is a long, long progression over time. And the idea is that you then convey to the dog, like, Hey, I will be neutral, like at best, I'll be neutral to that other dog. You don't need, first of all, you don't need to. And we could go into punishment and there's ways we might do that after we've left the dog there. It's probably best explained in person or, you know, like really specifically for the case. But the main thing is we want to show the dog, like you're not successful in doing that. That is not going to work. In fact, it's having the opposite effect of what you want. And so as you leave the dog, if your dog blows up and is like, I want to come with you, that's, we're stopping that progression. We're isolating and saying like, no, like you you did this, you caused me to leave via that aggression. I'll stay with you, I'll chill out with you and I'll never touch that other dog. That other dog can come and circle around us and I will ignore it if you stay cool with me. We stay connected and I won't unlink to that other dog. And you can show your dog that. And again, like I said much earlier, you show that to him by it being true. (laughs) Like you have to show him. And using that back tie allows him to be stuck there and be isolated and when you leave the dog like the thing to be careful about this is like, it's one of the things I'm real like, it's it's difficult explaining aggression treatment and that kind of stuff in this sort of circumstance, because like that is a horrific punishment to your dog. Like it's not a physically uh, abusive thing to do, but you're breaking his heart, right? Because the reason he's like, if the reason he's resource guarding you is he generally sees you as a resource and, and rarely a dog's protecting people when they say my dog's protecting me. But if that case exists, because sometimes it is, sometimes it really does exist. You're showing the dog, you, you lost me, right? Like, and so it's a horrific punishment. There's no hands on the dog. You're literally just walking away, but it's the most, it is in that time, the worst thing the dog can imagine. So you do that kind of stuff sparingly. Like don't, you know, you don't, um, don't muck around with that because you can really damage your relationship to the dog. And so it's, it's doing it at the lowest level of arousal, not going too far. There's a lot of control measures that you need to have in place to really make sure that works. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's kind of my best advice on resource guarding. Mm -hmm.
0: That's like a reverse Easter egg
1: yeah 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 <laughs> um
0: also, can you just kind of touch on um you, you mentioned it a little bit, but why um it's not good for the dog to 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 feel as though they own
1: the owner the yeah I think um relationship in the home is. It's complex, right? And especially if you want to be training, the way I like to train is I like to empower my dog massively, right? Like we, I like to make him think like I, what I would want is if you were to ask my dog who's in charge, I would genuinely want him to say him, right? Like I want that to happen, but I'm much smarter than him. So I can manipulate him into thinking that he's in control of certain aspects and feeling empowered by that but also at the same time, actually being helpless, right? Like, so that's kind of the, this balancing act that we want where we're totally in control. The dog does what we say when we want. He feels powerful doing that. He lives with us the way that we want him to live. And he happily does that thinking he's in control. I think where a lot of people go wrong is that their dog actually is in control. Right. And so they're sometimes, you know, thinking that, they're well maybe they're not doing it on purpose but the dog is actually controlling their life and more often than not that leads to a lot of uh, anxiety problems are, are often that right so a lot of separation anxiety type issues are really not separation anxiety their structure their their uh, relationship issues rather than separation anxiety um so it's really important that you show the dog like hey man like you feel good we're a team we work together but like at the end of the day you have to live your life the way that is important to you and the dog will adapt the dog will fit in but if you put the dog in a vacuum it will take over right it's one of the interesting things like i don't think the dominance and that kind of thing like it's it's been largely outplayed in its role in training but in life it's it's undeniable right like in the way that you interact all those sorts of things like people are it, it, dominance is environmentally circumstantial. Like there's so many different parts of it. Like take for example, so I have two dogs, right? I have a Malinois uh, who is a big, powerful thug of a dog, uh, and I have an itty bitty Springer Spaniel, right? Mm-hmm. And she is dominant over him in the house, right? She controls him, she pushes him around, she enforces her will on him, she growls at him, she bites him if he tries to take a ball, like all kinds of things, right? The moment we leave the house, there's a switch, right? Because he's, he's, he doesn't express much drive in the house, right? And so she does. But the moment we go outside, he expresses all his drive and it comes to a peak and she knows mm-hmm. to just stay out of his way because he'll kill her to get the ball, right? Mm-hmm. In the house, she can walk up to him and literally pull the con clean out of his mouth and he just accepts it, right? She wouldn't dream of even chasing the same ball that he chases when we're outside the house, right? So dominance is a real thing. And the same way, you know, like I don't fight with people online. I don't do it. People can say what they want to me and I'm just like, yeah, cool. Got it. Right. I love fighting in real life. Right. So the circumstances of dominance can change. People can dominate me all they want on Facebook and Instagram. I don't care, but in real life that's not going to happen. And so the same has to happen with your dogs. You have to set up that circumstance where it's like, Hey, dominance really is sort of a willingness to fight over a resource. That's basically kind of what it comes down to. Right. And so, If you are showing no desire over these resources or control over the resources, your dog will take control over them. And if you don't assert like, hey, this is something I have and I'm smarter than you, so I'm going to put you away and I'm going to take it now. I'm not going to have to have that fight that I said I wanted to avoid. If you don't do any of that, the dog will go, well, clearly I'm in control here. And he will assume that he's a dominant one. And then, of course, he's going to enforce his dominance upon you in one way or another. right? And he he will manipulate you into getting what he wants via that. So like I say, dominance is a real thing. It's not something that I, you know, play with much in training. Like I'm not going to say like, you got to dominate that dog. Like that's not happening, but it's going to happen in your home. And that relationship and structure is going to be hugely, you know, based around that. Right. Um, The other thing is as well, like a lot of dogs, if you put them in a position of dominance in the home, they're not made for it. Right. Like very few dogs really want that. Right. And, but they'll fill a power vacuum when it's left. And you know, not that many dogs really see themselves or want to be the dominant dog. Like that, that's not, it's not like every dog's trying to raise the, the pack structure. Like it's not like there's a ladder, like a corporate ladder, they're trying to climb. That's just not how they work. Yeah. If that were the case and lots of dogs were like that, they'd fight nonstop, but dogs typically get along. Right? So, uh, you, you kind of doing yourself, your dog a disservice by letting it run rampant and letting it take over. A lot of dogs are not capable of that. And the aggression that you see, that like resource guarding that people will call it, is actually fear of losing like the pack. I can't control this pack. It's a lot like if people... You know, if you got promoted into a position at your work that you weren't ready for, and then you're a bad leader because you're like, shit, I'm not actually up to this task, right? And I think a lot of people do that to their dogs. They're like, they, they make their dog feel as though they're in control because they let them run the house. And then the dog has a little meltdown internally because he's like, I'm not actually up to running this household. Like, I'm a dog, for God's sake. I, yeah. I can't control these people, right? <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, that's a good answer. I, I'm glad that we wrap with that. Pat, it's it's a pleasure talking to you. I have learned so much, and you have also um, given me so many different uh, ways of approaching. I mean, so many different uh, issues that we face, and just uh, my relationship with Rika. So,
1: my pleasure. Glad I yeah. be of help.
0: I, I am definitely going to try out the box feeding.
1: <laughs> yeah, give it a go. Yeah, nothing. Yeah. What's the worst that can happen? You waste some food. That's all.
0: Definitely. So I'll post this. Um, Thank you again. And uh, have a good, good rest of your Monday.
1: (laughs) Will do. Thank you very much. I'll see you out there.
0: Talk to you soon.
1: Bye. Bye.